Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Bring, bring it fast. Welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Thomas Barth. I'm the editor of wallsblog.com, uh, a website dedicated entirely to Wolverhampton Wanderers Football Club. Uh, and you can find us on the blog at wallsblog.com or on Twitter at wallsblog. Hi, I'm Drew McKenzie. I run All Stats Aren't We, which is a Leeds United fan channel. You can find us at All Stats Aren't We. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, guys, especially considering uh, your teams have not yet played. But there's a lot of that going on with the FA Cup and everything like that. But anyway, appreciate having you on. Uh, I wanted to start off the show by talking about what was probably the biggest news story of the week, which was... Uh, after a disappointing loss to Norwich a few, well, several days ago, uh, Burnley surprisingly let go of Sean Dyche on Friday, which seemed a little bit odd because that means he probably led all of the um, match preparations throughout the week. Uh, but yeah, I was just curious from you guys uh, why you think they moved on from him, if you think that was the right choice, and if you have any inkling or, or thoughts as to why they would have waited so long in the week to do it. Yeah, yeah he didn't feel prepared, did it? He didn't feel like it was something that they, they thought about um but, you know, I, I don't really study what's going on at Burnley in a huge amount of detail. They're not a high-profile high club, are they? You're not going on to BBC every day and reading about the turmoil at Burnley. Um, it, but I, I got the sense from the things I did see that there, the, there was a bit of a clash between, the you know, the new ownership and the people who are running that club now and Deich. So it did feel like maybe it was kind of coming to an end. Um, and maybe even if he kept them up, that they might have gone in a different different direction. Um, but yeah, it's it's a surprise the timing of it. You're kind of thinking now, and especially if you're looking at the people who are linked with the job, you're thinking, well, what what are they really going to gain by making a change this late in the in the season? Um, so yeah, I, I'm very surprised about it. Very surprised about the timing. Um, but yeah, it's one of those. It's a Anything could happen now, but it, it, I think the, the common feeling, if you ask most fans, that it just feels like another another nail in, in their coffin. Um, I watched their game at Norwich, uh, which proved obviously to be his last game, and they were unlucky in that game in the sense that Cornet missed an absolute clear <laughs> sighter of goal um, that, that probably would have changed the course of that game. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that game could have gone either way. So, I mean, you know, if they got the win there, maybe, maybe it would have progressed differently. But but that's it. You know, it's, um, yeah, it is what it is. I mean, I, I think if, if it, they're getting in someone like Big Sam, who, who's the bookies odds on favourite, um, I don't really see what that's going to do. Maybe they're just thinking they can just get a little bounce and maybe get three or four wins from their, from their last seven games and um, and do something. But yeah, it's 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 a weird one, and my gut instinct is that that's probably 
a decision that they're going to look back on and probably regret in a few weeks. Yes, the alluring manager bounce that seems to have done for them right. Um, and uh, there's, I guess, documented evidence that there's not really such a thing as a new manager bounce on average. But in some cases, a manager does pull a team around. And I suppose that's enough for a group to think that it's worth their while sacking a manager. And yeah, it's it's sad, but we've seen it happen with Leeds United this season. And um, whether or not JC Marsh has been good enough is maybe uh, another question entirely. But he's definitely got them the results and the points that they need. And I'm suspecting that that's the way that Burnley's ownership are feeling about these things. Um but yeah, it does look as though Burnley are in a lot of trouble. There's uh, obviously this curious financial reality behind the whole setup, um, which I think means that if they get into financial difficulties and can't pay back their loan repayments, then they may be in a situation where the ownership of the club reverts to the original owners uh, before ALK and uh, Alan Pace were brought in. So uh, a lot at stake for, for Burnley. And I always think that whenever there's a lot at stake for club ownership then they do tend to panic and make those those perhaps rash decisions but a shame to see Sean Dyche leaving um, after such a important tenure at that club and really put Burnley on the map kept them in the Premier League for so long um, despite the paucity of resources that he had at his at his fingertips and yeah I guess the old saying is there's no loyalty in football and I suppose the the curious cases of Marcelo Bielsa and Sean Dyche sort of prove that as soon as they hit that one chance of potentially being in a relegation battle, the clubs have moved them on and, and that's that. So, yeah, it's sad, sad times, but um, no doubt Sean Dyche will end up somewhere at some point uh, and it will be fascinating to see what happens with, with Burnley in the future. Yeah, I can't help but feel like this weird similarity between the Dyche situation at, at Burnley and the end days of Pochettino at Tottenham. Um, I, I was reading David Ornstein's article about what, what led to the sacking, which surprisingly didn't really include any of the bombastic things. I think, Thomas, you were kind of actually like, what led to him being sacked Friday? This does not feel like a planned thing. Or like John, you were mentioning, maybe they were just kind of panicking there. But it just kind of sounds like people were tired of the same routine. It was a squad that largely hadn't changed. It was a manager that largely hadn't changed his approach. There was a distance growing between the two. It's, it's kind of the, the standard cliches that you hear, but... One of the reasons I see that similarity is because I'm sure Burnley and Tottenham at their time with Pochettino were both so worried that somebody else was going to poach their manager away and that they'd lose them through that means, not that midway through a season that you'd be the ones letting go of them. And John, I think you make a great point that it's going to be really interesting to see where he winds up next, given you know some clubs that were interested in him like Palace and Everton. Could he get a job like that now, now that he's been sacked by Burnley after kind of steering them in the relegation direction, which of course they could recover or not. And then he, he still might kind of be on the hook for that. But yeah, I'm, I'm really curious to see where it goes from here and if things are going to get better. They do get the 1-1 draw today, which is interesting. Um, Cornet missed a few chances that could have given them the win. And Thomas, you mentioned he missed that goal uh, or, or that potential goal against Norwich, which also would have massively helped. And ultimately, you know, I, I know a lot of us like to view football in uh, like a tactical place or, or a philosophical place, but the people that run it look at it as results. And if, if Cornet scores those two goals, one against Norwich and one this week, they have five more points than they currently have. And maybe we're having an entirely different conversation, but yeah, ultimately very surprising. You both kind of mentioned people that may come in and take over from here to the end of the season. Maybe the draw is a point they wouldn't have gotten under Dice, but do you think either with the interims that they currently have or if they 
hire someone for the rest of the season that they'll pick up any more points in theory than they would have with Daesh? I don't think so. Um, well, I mean, it, with this close to the end of the season, you're thinking they're going to, they're not going to go with a manager who's going to completely reinvent the the style of the team, are they? So there's, there's just not enough time to do that. So they're either going to bring someone in like Allardyce, who who can probably play the way, you know, close to what, what Dyche is playing and maybe lean on that experience and a bit of fresh energy to do something. So maybe that they can do something there. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's hot. That's why I think there's a bit of surprise because it's like, well, what are they going to do this late in the season? Who's really going to come in and, and change the dynamic massively? Um, and, and these things can really unravel because the players sort of, that you know, they, their focus is just removed a little bit. Um, Wolves did it one season when we had, we sacked Mick McCarthy. It wasn't as close to the end of this. I think it was like late January, early February, and. You know, and and I think the focus we never we never got back in. You know, there was a bit of sharpness. The team wasn't as cohesive, and it did unravel. And we we went down fairly comfortably in the end. And it wouldn't surprise me to see that with Burnley. But that being said, they do have some winnable fixtures. So, you know, it is there, and they showed at West Ham today that they could have they could have lost that game, but they also could have won it very easily. As you say, Corne missed the penalty, um, and that they're trying to get some. They've got a bit of continuity at the moment, but they've got to, they've got to show their hand now, haven't they? What what are they going to do? Did they was this a plan, a thought out plan where they've got someone lined up and, and they're going to step right in, or has, has there been some kind of explosiveness at Burnley and they've just made a snap decision to get rid of Dyche? You know that that that's going to be very interesting. But but you know, answering your original question, it is very hard to see. You know, in the here and now, what the logic is to getting rid of him and who's going to come in with with fairly limited time and you know resources to do anything different, who's going to do any better? In these situations, it always comes down to the intangibles, as they say, and um, I just think it's a massive gamble to make because you don't really know what's going to happen with intangibles. It's kind of the point of intangibles. So they they definitely loaded their loaded their basket with with uh, a lot of gambles, and they're hoping that maybe a couple of results will will do it for them. Maybe bring in someone else and who can g them up and say, look, we're different different um, structure of of coaching staff. We've got um, we've got some winnable fixtures ahead of us. Let's just see if we can do this and and sort of ride those vibes um, up up the table. But uh, I do think it is. A, a gamble at the end of the day. Yeah, it, this is pretty much the consensus. It feels like everyone is just surprised and doesn't really think that this is going to work out for them. I suppose if they already thought they were going down, why not try one last thing? But of course, Daisha is what brought them up twice before, if memory serves. So you, you'd think you, you'd trust him in that situation again. Although obviously the championship and football at large have changed since since they were in the championship because he's kept him in the Premier League as long as he has. But yeah, obviously we want Burnley to do well because we love Jamie and having him on the show. And hopefully, uh, you know, whoever they bring in will be able to steer the ship right. But when, kind of like we've been saying, when when a couple of your star players aren't firing or when there have been squad issues or when there's ownership issues or when the managerial ideas are getting stale, it's, it's hard to recover from. But uh, <laughs> personally, I hope Jamie's on the show next year. And inherently that means I want Burnley to recover things here 
late in the season. Um, next, I wanted to talk a little bit about Manchester United because uh, a few shows ago, uh, we had this big discussion about all the races in the Premier League and how this is a great season because all the races are still there to be had. There's still a title race, still a race for the top four, still races for the European spots, still races for relegation. Um, and we largely framed it as Arsenal versus Tottenham. Uh, and suddenly, because Arsenal have lost three straight and Tottenham just dropped points to Brighton, suddenly Manchester United seemed to have a, a, a bit of life to them, just three points off Spurs as we record. Uh, and I was just curious, what, what do you make of their chances of, of climbing above those North London clubs to, to that last Champions League spot? And were we all a little too hasty to discard them uh, here during the Ragnik era? I don't think you can discard them uh, just because of the, the points gap isn't significant. Uh, but I think my thought is that they're going to get sorted out in the next couple of games because I mean I think their next two are Liverpool away and Arsenal away if I'm correct Mm -hmm. in my thinking I think they've also got to play Chelsea I don't like their fixtures and I think they're still if you look at their recent their last two performances they got beaten by a poor Everton side uh, and they were quite fortunate they leaned on Ronaldo obviously heavily to get that win against Norwich they don't really strike you as a team that are going to go and produce big performances in consecutive games. Um, you know, I, I just I just don't see it. Uh, looking at their fixtures, you know, I don't think there's enough winnable games for what I've seen of the quality of that Manchester United team that they can be relied on to get enough points. And I think, as I said to you just off air, Kev, I do feel if, if Man United were to make the top four, it would be because Arsenal and Tottenham really threw it away. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't think anyone can really disagree with that. Um, so, yeah, I, I just think that that Man United team isn't right. At the start of the season, I thought they were nailed on for fourth because I thought the firepower they had in the attacking third of the pitch would would give them the edge. And But that's kind of now how I've switched a bit. And that's how I feel about Tottenham with, with Kane and Son and then Man United through different circumstances. You know, Cavani hasn't been available to them and the stuff that's going on with Greenwood and Rashford hasn't fired. So they've been leaning on Ronaldo and... He's old and it's, you know, it's every couple of games for him rather than every week he's not producing. So, yeah, I, d- I don't think there's enough there for Man United. I'll be very surprised if they make it. Um, but then again, you know, a, f- a few weeks ago, I thought, oh, it's Arsenal's to lose now. They're going to go on and do it. And then, you know, up until yesterday, I was thinking Tottenham are going to steamroll everyone. And then there's just a question mark after after that performance against Brighton, whether they're going to have a, you know, a little wobble as well. But but yeah, um, I, I, I don't see it. I think Man United, just, they've just got too many difficult games to go in, in, in the run and I just don't think they're strong enough. The, the, there's, there is a massive discrepancy between the title race right now and the race for the fourth spot to get into the Champions League. And yeah, in the title race between Manchester City and Liverpool, it's just such high level. It's... You're just not expecting either of those two teams to drop points unless when they play each other. Uh, and in the, the race for the fourth spot at the moment, it seems to be the exact opposite. It's, no one seems to be able to string together any sort of consistent run. But I also think when considering that sort of topic, like who do we think is the most likely team to string those consistent results together? And I think it's probably fair to say Spurs would be the favourites in that respect, um, regardless of the fact that certain teams do seem to be able to uh, respond to Conte fairly well. Um, so the no surprises that uh, Graham Potter, who's a tactically astute manager, might have found those weaknesses and found ways of, of stymieing 
Spurs. Mm. In general, you just expect Spurs to maybe still continue their slow roll and, and, and probably take that top four uh, spot. Um, outside of that, we've seen that Arsenal have maybe faltered a little bit recently. They've got a very young team. And again, I think um, not to talk about intangibles all the way through this podcast, but um, when you have young players and they're in that the, the pressure of having to produce results in a in a in a race for a, a top four spot like this, then I could see them dropping off a little bit. And with Manchester United, they just are not consistent at all. They've got players with the ability to pull results out, but just not a, a particularly impressive approach tactically, which is going to allow them to do that with any level of consistency. So for me, I think it's probably going to be Spurs, but none of those teams can be discounted. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And Thomas and I were talking a little bit before we hit record as well about Brighton. And, and a lot of people were talking about Spurs shortcomings and Harry Kane flying to go watch golf and all these reasons that the, the team bottling it and really just Brighton did really well handling the, the automations that exist in Conte's system. And basically nobody was able to pass out past the back line. Some connection to the midfield, absolutely no connection to the front line. Uh, and you don't win matches like that. There were a couple of small chances, but yeah, it wasn't going to happen. So my main concern uh, on the Tottenham side is, I think you're, first of all, thank you both for your very kind words. Um, <laughs> secondly, uh, I'm starting to worry that teams are starting to figure it out more. Uh, I think Aston Villa probably played the better match in that match, although we scored four goals. Because um, as soon as we scored, they kind of opened up a bit more. Uh, which weirdly also happened with Newcastle, that once they... Once they went down, they were like, oh, okay, well, we're just going to go full attack and let them, you know, hit us on the break, which they're pretty dang good at. Um, but yeah, I don't think we were we were the better team in the Villa match. And then we obviously uh, weren't able to get anything done against Brighton. So I do have a little bit of fear that we're being found out um, because, you know, Conte's system is very repetitive. And if you can figure out the ways to eliminate some of those kind of key factors in the way they build a play, it can get pretty tough. But uh, I do think Tottenham have the better manager. I think they have the better 11 and they have the better fixtures. And I'm 0% confident any of that is going to matter. Kind of going to your intangibles point uh, there, John. And uh, yeah, I, I think ultimately it's basically Conte doesn't fail, except when he does, it's <laughs> spectacular. And Tottenham often falls short when they just need a little bit more. And it's like, which of those is going to win out? Um, but yeah, as for United... Uh, it's a it's a very weird squad. I totally agree with you, Thomas. At the start of the season, I was like, there there's literally too much talent here for them to not end up like in a clear fourth, where you know they aren't as good as Chelsea, City, and Liverpool, but they're way better than everyone else, and that just really hasn't happened. Uh, on our half season show that we did with Dave, uh, he talked about how Ronaldo was their leading scorer, but he's like equal parts arsonist and firefighter. Where the fact that he doesn't fit into um, maybe some of the pressing aspects as well as he could or or participate in a lot of the build-up the way that he could, but then he scores the goals and you're like, oh, he saved us. And you're like, well, he's also kind of part of the reason you're losing. Um, I thought it was really interesting, but obviously huge performances from him against Tottenham and then here against Norwich to get 3-2 wins is uh, enough to kind of keep them in this conversation. Uh, as for the manager himself, Ragnick obviously came in in November uh, after they passed on Antonio Conte, which thank you very kindly. Uh, and I was just curious what you've made of his managerial tenure at the club, which, you know, reportedly is going to last just the six months that it was originally intended to be. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's sort of a bit mare, isn't it? I, I don't know what... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's no tangible identity to that Manchester United team. Um, 
And that's probably one of the things that's perhaps the most disappointing because when he was announced, he came with this reputation of, of being quite a sort of inventive, uh, a leader kind of amongst coaches. Klopp was talking him up and, you know, he, he's revered, you know, in terms. So I thought he might be able to get, even if they didn't get the results, he would he would be able to coax some kind of, you know, personality and style out of that group of players. And it just hasn't really happened. They're quite a boring team to watch um, with, the, with the players they've got. I mean, I think mechanically that the midfield is just not right. Everyone knows that. I think think the um, that was that was the strange thing uh, last summer that they, they didn't really go and sort out the midfield. It felt like they were under Solskjaer at their best. They were a very good counter-attacking team, counter-punching pace. Um they were able to, you know, get teams like that and, and be quite an effective, attractive team, particularly away from home. They had that good away record where they, they didn't lose for ages. I think they beat the Premier League record, actually, didn't they, for the longest um, unbeaten run or match did anyway. So, but yeah, I mean, the Duranjic, I think they tried to transition from being this counter-attacking team to, to something different that would that would allow them to close the gap to Liverpool and City. But in doing that, they've, they've made themselves worse and then, circumstances have dictated they've been without certain players as I mentioned earlier I just think it's unraveled and then Ranić is probably he would probably say there's only so much you can do with these players there's egos in the in the group um it's quite a disparate group of players some some know they're heading for the exit and maybe they're not up to the level um other other players you know there's this whole thing with Ronaldo that he's inherited where you've, you've probably got to play Ronaldo and and does that does that disrupt the team? It becomes about him. So I think he's been dealt a difficult hand, um, and and so I've got a degree of sympathy with him. And so maybe, particularly obviously, if he's if he's able to somehow get them to fall, then he'll have done fantastically, regardless of what we think about their performances and, and what he's done with the team. But I think they'll probably fall just short. And I think we'll look back on this period and just be like, well. He came in and did a job with with what looks, um, you know, a, a difficult in a difficult situation with a, a group of players that aren't particularly all pulling in the same direction. And so, yeah, you know, maybe he did all right, but but I, as I say, I'm personally disappointed that maybe we haven't really seen more of the innovation and the kind of tactical nuance that maybe it was it was thought that he would bring to the table. The thing with Ralph Rangnick is that he developed a style of football that has been used across the Red Bull multi-club system. Um, and we're seeing sort of interesting aspects of that in the Bundesliga right now. So a lot of the coaches who've gone through that system have have not succeeded. Um, so we've seen uh, Marco Rosa at Borussia Dortmund struggling with them. I, I guess they are in second place as things stand, but um, they've struggled definitely this season. Uh, Jesse Marsh, who was, I, I guess, the poster boy of of the Red Bull system, failed at, at Leipzig at the beginning of this season. And, and he was sort of sandwiched by two non-Red Bull coaches who seem to have done much better with Leipzig than than he managed as well. Um, so I do think that there's, there's questions about the system that is um, being or seeking to have been implemented by Rangnick. He attempted to get Manchester United playing in that system early on in his time at Manchester United, but has given up since then, largely, I'd say. And so the, what you're left with is, is a bit of a mess, really. Um, but then I suppose the, the big question about Rangnick is that uh, allegedly he was being brought in to be brought to be moved upstairs. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with him in that respect, because he has always been the, the sort of guy above the manager who's 
um, helped implement systems rather than actually coaching those systems themselves as well. So, yeah, again, it just seems to be that Manchester United struggle to operate with any sort of sense of joined up thinking. Um, and it will be fascinating to see actually how Ericsson Haag um, it works in, in the Manchester United job because we've seen a lot of managers now coming through, a lot of well-respected managers coming through and failing to, to bring Manchester United into some kind of orderly fashion that is required of a, of a club of their stature. So a uh, lot to play for, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm similar um, to, to Thomas there and I think it feels as though he's been dealt a fairly poor hand. The, the conditions weren't really exactly great for him. Uh, and it was a six-month experiment that will be followed by something else. So, um, yeah, again, fascinating to see how the future looks for them. Uh, do you think that he would do a good job of acquiring the players to build that kind of, uh, you know, club-wide infrastructure that he did with the, the Leipzig clubs? I know you mentioned they're kind of struggling, but do you think, like, knowing that Ten Hogs coming in, that he does have the ability to see the players that would work well within that system? Yeah, it's a good question. Um I do think that there's a lot of similarities between what Ten Hag is doing off the ball and what the Red Bull clubs are trying to do. Um, and I suppose the, the big gamble with the Red Bull, Bull clubs is they don't worry too much about in-possession stuff. So the, the general idea is that you win the ball in um, counter-pressing scenarios and then launch a quick counter-attack. Uh, and so you see a lot of transition backwards and forwards, whereas with Ten Hag, what you'll see is you'll see uh, position, uh, pos possessional play um, and, and an attempt to score through generating um, through possession, followed by that aggressive counter-pressing to win the ball back uh, as well. So I think that, it, that the marrying of those two minds could work. Um, there's definitely the, the system there from Eric Ten Hag that, that will, will do well. The only question is going to be, as I've said, that possessional side of things for, for Rangnick, because he's never really had to worry about that. Um, because the Red Bull system isn't really about creating through possession, but creating through actually loss of possession, if that makes sense. Yeah, those are some really interesting points. And we'll see how they fare the rest of the season and, and if he can build them well as a director of football. Although I'm not sure that's technically his title. I don't know if I've seen that yet, but I'm sure there'll be press releases aplenty once uh, all of that becomes official, including the reported edition of Ten Hag. Uh, I also wanted to talk about our clubs in particular. Well, <laughs> specifically your two clubs. Uh, both of your goalkeepers, obviously, Meslier and Sa, uh, ranked top five in the Premier League in saves this season. Obviously, historically, leading the league in saves is a little, uh, you know, <laughs> a backhanded compliment because often it means the defense in front of you wasn't doing a particularly good job and you're conceding loads of shots and that's how uh, the, the keepers are able to rack up the massive save totals. I think Sam Johnston was a really good recent example. Uh, and I was just curious, uh, which feels more true for you? Is it individual brilliance from your goalkeeper? Is it defense not really keeping out the, uh, a glut of chances from, from opposition teams? Where, where do you see that situation falling at, at your specific clubs? Uh, I can I can definitely pinpoint a lot of very good Jose Sar saves um, where I you know I, I, I feel that he's just he's excelled he's excelled as a goalkeeper um, you, you know I think the 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 Wolves are obviously a very defensively strong team we've got a good we have got a good record it's come apart a little bit recently um, obviously John will remember the Leeds game very fondly uh, we defended terribly in that game but. Um, but yeah, I mean, generally all season, he, I think our XG is actually worse than last season. And we were like in the bottom half last season. So it, it does go to show that the goalkeeper, he's, he's a big, he's been a big difference maker for us. 
um, because I think, and he has papered over some cracks. And I think he has made our defensive record look better than it, it probably should do. Um, because like I said, I can remember a lot of big saves that he's made, clear chances where it felt like, oh, this is going to be a goal and he, he saved it. So, um, so yeah, I mean, he, he's been excellent by any, I think by any metric, like you say, Kev, you can massage statistics to, to make certain players look good. Like you say, teams at the bottom, goalkeepers will always make the best saves, but that doesn't mean they're the best goalkeepers. Um, but I think if you look at all the statistics that are relevant to goalkeepers, then Jose Sarr is right up there. Um, and I do think he's been one of the best players uh, of the season. I mean, I don't think, I don't expect him to get into the Premier League team of the season because that's not generally how it tends to work, is it? But I actually think pound for pound, he's probably had the best all-round goalkeeping performance um, of any goalkeeper in the league. Um, so, yeah, but I don't know if John's going to disagree with that about Millier. I'm not going to disagree with that. I think Sars had a brilliant season all round. I think Melier has had a mixed bag when it comes to his performances. He has been, I think, maybe one of the best 1v1 goalkeepers in, in the league. Certainly, um, well, maybe even in, in the world because he's had a lot of practice at it. Um, but there has been questions asked of him in terms of some of his shot-stopping uh, performances as well. Um, so if you look at things like post-shot expected goals, which is a very nerdy uh, metric, which tries to assess how well a keeper should have done once you take into account the speed and trajectory of the ball after it's hit. Um, he's, his numbers have been pretty poor. He's down there with some of the worst performers this season. Um, there were questions raised about whether or not the fact that Leeds were quite so bad as they were defensively meant that that he was facing these sort of outlier shots where where you just they they, they break the models because they're um, more likely for opponents to score from, um, and that's another argument entirely. Uh, but he is a young goalkeeper and um, has been learning his trade at the very highest level, so I'm willing to to give him uh, the benefit of the doubt on that one. So, yeah, I'm I'm with you, um, Kevin. What you said at the, the beginning, this is very much to do with his stats look good because of volume and volume generally indicates poor defending uh, and Leeds have definitely defended poorly. But um, yeah, I do think that Melier is a great keeper. I do think that his 1v1 defending is really, really top notch. Um, and yeah, hopefully he will have, uh, his stats will start turning the corner now that we've got a bit more of a solid, uh, uh, I guess, conservative um, defensive system in front of him. Yeah, I think that's probably true with Melier, where it's like, yeah, he's good, but also these stats aren't really telling the full truth. But as you say, there are underlying ones, which which might be a bit more accurate than the than the obvious ones that we get touted so frequently, including uh, what I just did. <laughs> but I was curious for both of you, if there's a particular save or moment from your goalkeeper this year that really stands out to you as a moment where you're like, oh, dang, that is a very good goalkeeper. Yeah, there is actually. Uh for Wolves. There was a game against Chelsea that finished nil-nil, and there wasn't much in the game. Um, and it's just one of those games when you're playing the top sides, you just think their moment's going to come in this game. And I think there was probably about five minutes left, and Pulisic just got a break of the ball, and he and he was clean through. Uh, and Saar came out, and he lift, and Pulisic lifted it, and um, this hand just came out <laughs> joyously, and uh, and just tipped it around the post. And you were like, well, that that's a massive save. That that felt like that was their moment and and he it felt like the weight of expectation where everything was going towards Chelsea and he just changed it in an instant so that that was a big moment and there have been there have been others big saves that he's made I remember he, he saved another one at Villa Park uh from Danny Ings 
Um, and, and as another game we won. I can think of others. I think you know Norwich away. We should have lost. He made another couple of saves in that game. He's just been. He's been, he's had an excellent season. There's been some erratic moments just because of by the nature of the type of goalkeeper he is. He, he's kind of like he's a very proactive goalkeeper. He's keeper sweeper. He runs around his box a lot. He's, he's, he has the ball at his feet a lot. So he, those kind of goalies will inevitably make mistakes occasionally and cost you goals. Um, but uh, but generally he's been outstanding. But yeah, that that moment against Chelsea kind of summed up his excellent season. I'm not sure if this is necessarily because of Melier's goalkeeping prowess, but the moment that stands out for me is the Norwich game that we ended up winning 2-1 after scoring a goal in injury time. We then gave Norwich a glorious chance at equalising late in the game and Timu Puki was through on goal and Melier managed to save the ball with his face and uh, I think that sort of says a lot about, about <laughs> our season. He's pulled out, he has pulled out some really cracking saves, he has kept us in a lot of games and uh, yeah, sometimes maybe not as, uh, as in such a finessed way as you might want but yeah, I think that's, that's a good example. Yeah, probably hard to forget a keeper having a goal, a game-saving goal with his face. But uh, ultimately, you know, as long as it doesn't go in the back of the net, it technically worked. Uh, all right, we'll leave that there, and then we'll take a quick break, and we'll be back with club-specific questions for each of our guests. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right, and we are back, Thomas. We'll keep with you starting to talk about Wolves. Uh, I mentioned a few shows ago we were talking about who were who were the favorites in each of these races. And one of the things came down to Wolves versus West Ham for one of the European spots, probably Europa League, but, you know, depending on how things finish uh, in England and elsewhere, it could end up being the, the, the much sought-after <laughs> UEFA European Conference League spot. Um, but people largely felt that they would rather be on the West Ham side of things. And the main thing they were pointing out was that while both of them claimed to believe that the in the old American adage that defense wins championships, uh, that it was the goal scoring of West Ham that, that Wolves really didn't have an answer for when trying to win some of these like matches in, in this run. And, and I was just curious if you feel like that's a fair assessment and if that's also a thing that Wolves fans are worried about is, is where are the goals going to come from down this stretch? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, like you say, I think defensively, defences do win these, but then you've also got to be able to go and get the one. Even if you concede in zero, someone's got to go and get one at the other end. There's been a lot of games where I haven't been able to do that. Um, so it's it's, uh, it's it's a fair assessment. 
And I, I think I said the last time I was on here, we've always just been one result behind. You know, we've, we've got gone away and got some wins, and then it's like, oh, we've got, we're playing Arsenal and West Ham back-to-back. Even if we've got a point in one of those games now, we'd be right in amongst those teams. But we couldn't, couldn't hold on against Arsenal, having led the game for like 86 minutes, ended up losing it. Couldn't get a result against West Ham. It was a pretty stodgy game. Um, it just felt like we'd just not quite been good enough. Um, but it is still there because, you know, those teams were three points behind West Ham with a game in hand now. Um, and I know West Ham have got to play a couple of the teams. I think they're going to play Arsenal and uh, they're going to play Tottenham. I don't know. They've got they've got a couple of difficult fixtures remaining. So they're, they're still there to be got at. Um, but yeah, I think I was remembering correctly now that if one of West Ham or Leicester win their respective European competition, then eighth place could actually be good enough for some form of European football. Um, so that that's not unlikely. So I would like to see us lock down eighth place. I, I did have one eye on how Leicester got on at Newcastle today because they're one of the teams that could conceivably peg us back. If they'd won today at Newcastle, they'd have been six behind us with two games in hand. Um, so, yeah, so that I'd like to keep that gap, <laughs> that buffer below us because I wouldn't want to really finish any lower than eighth. Um, but I, I do think it's probably going to be seventh, eighth, or ninth for Wolves, depending on what we can do in the remaining the remaining games. But um, but yeah, I, I, if if I was a betting man now, I, I think we'll be eighth, and that's just as you say, I don't think we'll score quite enough goals. Even though there was a statistic during the rounds that uh, a few games ago that only Liverpool had scored more goals in the, since the turn of the year than Wolves. But I think that owes to the fact that we got four against Watford and then two against Leeds, you know, in obviously a game that we lost. So there was that sort of mini blitz against teams that like to concede goals where we, we cashed in a little bit. So it's potentially a bit um, a bit deceptive. But, um, but yeah, I, ju- I just think we're probably going to fall a bit short of seventh. Got it. Yeah, I think I saw somewhere that the, the new max is nine for all of the European competitions from a nation. So... Uh, it's possible there's even a spot after you, even in a worst case scenario. So uh, that would be pretty fascinating. Obviously, the gap between um, that kind of top group and Leicester is is pretty large. Uh, but yeah, it, it's very interesting to me how, how that all will work out with the amount of clubs, like you say, that are still in contention for European spots, either through their own external competitions or through the Premier League itself. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit more about how you're building up attack. So third worst in the league in chance creation. Uh, I believe your highest uh, chance creating player is Daniel Podence and none of your players average more than one chance created a match. Uh, obviously the the style that you play isn't very heavily dependent on like an attacking midfielder as many systems don't rely on like a true number 10 anymore. But I was just curious if you expect the players that you have and the way that you're playing to just create more within you know, the structure as everything exists now, or if that might be a position that you look to bolster in the summer, especially if you're in a European competition of somebody that can set up more opportunities for your front line. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a big change coming in the summer. Um, since we've been back in the Premier League, we've obviously played with a back three primarily, and then Matinho and Neves um, parked in front of that back three. So when you've got that block of five, uh, it it's going to limit you in terms of what you can do because as good as Matinho and Neves are, and they're two absolutely fantastic players, there's not a lot of legs there. There's not a lot of energy. You know, when Chelsea play that system with, you know, with two midfielders, they've got like Kante and Kovacic and they're players with legs. They get around the pitch. And I felt that is a big difference maker uh, for them playing that system against how Wolves play it. Mechanically, we're quite a static team. Um, so I think, 
I think there's a lot of hype around Ruben Neves being moved on in the summer. I say moved on, obviously we desperately like to keep him, but he's two years left on his contract. There are reportedly teams linked with him, Arsenal, Man United, possibly even Barcelona. Um, I, I think he'll move. And I think that will prompt Wolves to reinvent the midfield. Jean Moutinho as well is out of contract. And I, I think he would have signed now if he was going to hang around. So I think we're going to have to reinvent the midfield out of necessity. Um, and so I think that's going to bring a change in style. Bruno Large at Benfica like to play a kind of much more attacking play with a back four, um, two two midfielders, two sort of holder midfield, but then a proper more attack minded team. So I think there's a summer of change coming at Wolves, and I think that the Wolves you see next season will be a much different Wolves to the the one that um, you know the Premier League has become accustomed to seeing recently. I think Bruno Large would have liked to have made more wholesale sell changes this season, but just because. I don't think he got the backing he was perhaps hoping in either of the transfer windows, particularly last summer. Uh, we were linked with Renato Sanchez and that deal looked like it was going to happen and then it just tailed away. And I think he's the kind of player who would have maybe given us a little bit more of a you know, dynamic element to our, to our midfield that we've lacked at times. So, um, so yeah, I think, it, I think it's more mechanically. I think we don't get the ball into those, those front players that we've got. I think the likes of Trincao, um, Wang and, and, and Pedence, like you mentioned, that, that we, we're not serving them enough in and around the area to create the chances and get those killer balls, which is, is why, which is why I think alluding to those stats that you were mentioning is why we're weak in that respect. I don't think it's that those players are bad players. I just don't think we're working the ball up to them um, in the ways we could perhaps do it. So uh, I think, you know, Traore, obviously, there was a question. He came into the season with a question mark over him. He never properly settled into the season. He would have been a big chances-created guy if we could have got a proper season out of him. And Pedro Neto didn't get back until December. He's obviously another difference maker. So I think that, you know, a lot of things have converged to make us poor in that respect and, and limit Bruno Lodge. But um, as I say, I think, I think next season, you know, whether we turn out to be better or significantly worse, it, it will be a different Wolves team. Gotcha. Well, yeah, we'll definitely keep an eye on that and see if there is a, a more creative Wolves coming next year under Bruno Lage. Uh, we'll come to you now, John, to talk about Leeds. Um, I was curious what you've made of the Jesse Marsh era thus far. You kind of mentioned at the top of the show that, you know, the, the results and points are, are kind of coming, but maybe you're, you're less impressed with, with his performance otherwise. Yeah, it's a tricky one because I've, I've already suggested that maybe the Red Bull style isn't something that really attracts me aesthetically so that's something I sort of have to have at the back of my mind whenever I talk about Jesse Marsh uh, but in terms of the the situation that we're in right now yes of course the, the results have been great and it's pretty much put us into a position of safety really uh, but there are some sort of funny um, situations along the way which I think you know without a huge amount of variance could have meant that Leeds were in a much worse position so I've already talked about the Norwich game uh, which was, you know, Leeds were drawing until injury time of the 90 minutes um, and could easily have gone on and drawn that game. The Wolves game, again, was a bit of an outlier in terms of the fact that we were getting roundly hammered, really, by Wolves until the uh, Raul Jimenez um, red card changed the, the course of the game. 
Uh, and then against Watford, we we put up very very uh, bland attacking numbers. Uh, we were helped. We were definitely helped out by them passing the ball to Rodrigo um, in right in front of goal for a one-on-one with the goalkeeper. Um, and again, the underlying numbers suggest that maybe a, a draw would have been more fair. So it's it's been a strange situation. There's definitely been a sort of upturn in in I suppose again the the intangibles the 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 three years, of, I suppose, of Marcelo Bielsa's, um, I don't want to say authoritarianism, because that's probably unfair, but, um, you know, hyper awareness of everything going on and, and controlling everything as is there, you know, similar to what we talked about with Sean Dice, that uh, having a, a mix-up is is always good for, I, I suppose, team morale. So there's that. Uh, but I do think that the further we get away from Bielsa, the worse we look in possession, which I suppose is maybe not surprising, again, given what I said about Rangnick and, and Red Bull football being about generating chances through counter-pressing rather than through possession play. So um, it's it's a strange one because, yes, obviously the club have panicked. They've brought in a, a coach and they will feel themselves to have been justified by the fact that the results have turned around. But I do think that the results do paper over a lot of the cracks um, and at some point we are going to have to see something in the way of, of good performances rather than just vibes performances because once we get out of this season we're going to be in next season and if we're playing the same way that we are now if it's not some kind of tactical upturn then we're going to be in a relegation battle next season and I, I think the problem is is that you know it's all well and good with with eight games to go to have have that sort of vibes approach to management but uh, as soon as this season starts again You've got to G people up for uh, non-entity games right from the beginning of the season. And I think there's only so much you can do uh, in that respect. So, yeah, good to have the performances which have justified uh, our league position in terms of uh, in terms of points. But maybe performances could be a little bit better. Gotcha. You mentioned that you don't particularly enjoy the style, but do you think the tactics themselves are fundamentally flawed or just that you would need to have a pretty big squad overhaul to bring in players that would match it? Yeah, yeah, it's a, that's an interesting question. I do think that so part of the problem is is that people assume that if a manager wins, then his tactics have been justified. And there's an extent to which I think that's that's true. Obviously, you you you're always going to have to account for variance. But in these instances, what we're seeing is a sort of weird mixture of Bielsa stuff with Marsh stuff, and to be honest, probably the worst parts of both. And so. For me, it's hard to judge how to answer that question because it's not its not as if right now I'm saying, well, you know, the, the tactics are working, but I just don't like the aesthetics. I'm actually saying, well, I don't like the aesthetics and I don't even think this is the tactics that he really wants to be playing anyway. So we're, sort of a, we're, we're in sort of a holding pattern right now in terms of the tactical side of things. And I've watched a lot of Red Bull football to prepare for Jesse Marsh. And, you know, if we were playing that kind of football, the sort of football that we saw him play at, Red Bull Salzburg, then I would be okay with it. It wouldn't be my ideal, but I would be okay with it. And I think it would probably be fine to get us mid-table football in the Premier League. The problem for me is that we aren't seeing that. Um, And so the the big question for Jesse Marsh is how long is it going to take him to get the team playing the way that he had the um, Salzburg team playing? If at all, will he actually ever get to that position? Is it the case that going into a Red Bull system club where they've been playing that system for years, they've recruited for that system is going to be a lot easier than coming to a club like Leeds where the players actually don't fit his system at all really stylistically and he's going to have to turn things around fairly quickly at the beginning of next season for for anything to happen so 
I, I don't think that the issues are necessarily squad size so much as squad shape. Um, and there's going to be a really busy summer for, for Victor Orta and, and Jesse Marsh himself to try and get things into some sort of, um, I suppose, better um, system for, for the, the play style that Jesse Marsh wants to play. Gotcha. Well, based off of what you both are saying about your clubs, obviously Spurs with their first full summer window with Conte, Manchester United with probably a new manager and a whole summer to deal with that. There's going to be a lot of movement in this summer window as teams kind of remake themselves in the image of their new manager. So, yeah, it will be fascinating to see where I'm sure any number of incredibly talented players will wind up in the Premier League. Uh, John, also, if you don't mind, I mentioned before we hit record that I've really been enjoying your podcast about tactics uh, by the same name. Uh, and I was just curious if there's any tactical idea that you either heard about or, or read about recently that you just found particularly interesting. You're really putting me on the spot. Aren't you? <laughs> um, in terms of individual tactics, maybe not, but a lot of the things that we cover is is looking at the way the tactics work within the context of a larger club. So I've just recorded a podcast episode with Alex Collings looking at Lyon in France. And uh, what's interesting about Lyon is that they're a club who are essentially a talent developer. So you'll you'll have heard of many of the players who go through the Lyon system and have moved on elsewhere. I think Karen Benzema is probably the, the most um, well-known of those at the moment. He's obviously having a really uh, great, great period at the, maybe towards the tail end of his career. Um, but what's the, the interesting question that we're talking about there is like, what impact does that have that you are, that you are a club who are developing young players uh, with, and, and that's the sort of raison d'etre as a club? What, did, what impact does that have on the manager that you have and uh, the, the players that you're developing? Are there certain traits that you can see in Lyon players? What happens if you're bringing in largely technical players? Um, how can that impact the performances that you're putting in in your league? So how are Lyon faring in Liga at the moment as well? They did actually absolutely tonk Bordeaux today so clearly it's going well enough but um, these are the sorts of questions that we're, we're covering uh, a lot but in, t- in terms of individual tactics I, I feel as though I've fobbed you off a little bit with just a, an advert for my podcast but um, yeah we are talking about rest defence in, in a few weeks time as well which is um, an idea that is becoming more popular and more it's getting more exposure in in this social media spaces so rest defence is the idea of how you structure your players in an attacking uh, moment so that if you do lose the ball you'll be able to defend a transition quite quite uh, well and that's something I've really enjoyed finding out more about as well. Cool well don't feel bad about plugging your show I literally did it first so <laughs> <laughs> I'm also sure that the audience that listens to this would very much enjoy your show so everybody's listening go look it up it's called a podcast about tactics one of the most inventive names I've probably ever heard but uh, it's very very good and I'm sure you will enjoy listening. All right we'll go from there into Player Watch where I was just curious who at your club do you think really needs to step up if you're to reach your objectives for, uh, you know, Wolves reaching that, you know, Europa League spot and for Leeds just ensuring your safety? Yeah, I think as, as we've discussed already, we need we need some goals. And um, the obvious source of that for Wolves is Raul Jimenez. Um, he's had a very strange season. Um, I wouldn't say he's, he's had a bad season and I wouldn't say he's had a brilliant season. I think in the context of the injury that he's come back from, you'd say he's had a good season because he's played a lot of games. He's got some goals. He's won some games for Wolves in a team that's done generally quite well. Um, but he, he sort of... The thing about Raul is he's playing like a guy who is savouring every moment because obviously he had this horrendous injury, which is good. But 
sometimes I feel like he takes he's not really applying himself with the kind of aggression that he did before his injury, which again is fully understandable. But because we haven't really got a, a primed and ready replacement for him, I'd like it, it has harmed us in some games where he's doing like flicks and and things that carefree stuff where I feel if he was a bit more focused and locked in, it, it would benefit the team. So I think if he can really pick up, you know, you because he's obviously missed the last two games through suspension after that lead sending off. If he can come back now and hit the ground running and get us some wins and prove the difference in, you know, in fixtures against the likes of Burnley and Brighton and Norwich, where he should be a difference maker, then that that could really that could fire us to, you know, seventh place and 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 a very good season indeed. So um, he'll be the one I'm I'm really pinning our hopes on and you know keep the defence solid and nick a few of these these uh, tight games with um, with some goals from morale. I think the player that needs to stand up this season has probably been the player who has stood up this season for Leeds, which is Rafinha. Uh, Leeds at the moment are just a bad, bad side in, uh, who have a really, really elite player who can give us good moments. And we spent a lot of time at, at All Stats, aren't we, talking about how um, Rafinha maybe doesn't suit the system at Leeds or didn't suit the system at Leeds as well as he could have done. But despite that fact, the system really wasn't working. And when it came to those clutch moments, Rafinha delivered so many times, so many games where we've scored in the last 15 minutes of games because Rafinha's just made it his business to make sure that we score. And um, yeah, we've we've really benefited from him. So um, I don't think he needs to stand up. I think he's stood up all season. He's had he's had ebbs and flows of, uh, of form. But I think for the most part, like without him, we would definitely have been in the relegation zone. And as it is, we've not actually dipped in there outside of the first few weeks of the season at all. Well, we certainly hope that you don't from here. <laughs> we'll head into match previews and then that'll wrap things up for us. Uh, it's going to be Burnley versus Wolves. We were just kind of talking about them earlier in the show. I got to imagine you're more confident with a Dicheless Burnley than you would have been if he had been there. Yes, but uh, you know, like we said, they played well at West Ham today. And uh, they've actually got another game before they play us at home to uh, Southampton on the Thursday before they play us on the Sunday. Uh, so I'll be watching that keenly to see how they perform. I see Burnley's next three games, Southampton at home, Wolves at home, Watford away, Villa at home. There are points there for them to get, you know, and and it's not finished for them. So I think the next three games in particular, Southampton, Wolves and, and uh, Watford, they'll be thinking, this is it now, this is make or break. So um, what happens in that Southampton game could could have a, you know, a, a real serious knock-on effect of what kind of shape they're in when they come to play us. Um, but from a Wolves perspective, we'll have, as I say, Raul back from suspension. Uh, we miss Pedence and Dendonka at Newcastle badly in the last game. So they'll be back, hopefully. I think Ruben Neves, it's probably a bit too soon for him. Um, but but the, the squad should be stronger than it was, than you know, the, the game we deservedly lost at, at St. James's Park. Um, so we, we don't generally do very well at Burnley. We haven't won there since we've been back in the Premier League. I think it's two defeats and a draw in our last three seasons. We don't tend to cope well with, with the way they play. Uh, we didn't beat them at Molyneux earlier in the season. So it, it should be a very difficult game. Hopefully it's a nice sunny Sunday afternoon because we've been going there on rainy, cold, horrible <laughs> nights, which is when you don't really generally want to go to Burnley. Um so yes, I'm hoping that will bode well and we'll we'll get the win. But I every year I seem to predict, yeah, this will be the year we do well at Turf Moor and we don't. 
So I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be sitting firmly on the fence and at the moment and, and saying a draw, uh, knowing full well it could it could really go either way. Yeah, and Leeds have got Palace um, away from home. It's really tricky to judge any Leeds game at the moment because of the fact that we've changed systems pretty drastically recently. The last time we played Palace, we managed to scab a bit of a result with a late late penalty from uh, a Mark Guehi handball that, that was sort of very innocuous uh, from a corner. Um, so they, they definitely caused us problems last time around. This time around, I'm not sure what's going to happen so much. As I've said, um, it's hard to see how the, the, the new system sort of fits against other teams. But I would suspect that, that um, Palace will be a tough team to break down. I think the teams that Jesse Marsh has struggled against have been the teams where they have been fairly happy to, to set up conservatively um, and, and have a sort of mid-block, lower block um, with with. I suppose uh, and the the attacks coming from from a position of having absorbed pressure and then counterattacking from there uh, leads because they aren't necessarily structured possessionally. I think struggle to break down those blocks. So this could be a tough tough game for Leeds in many respects. So um, I, and I don't see any reason to 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 necessarily change uh, my prediction on the basis of getting a new manager in. Um, but we'll see how it goes. Gotcha. Well, we'll leave things there. If you guys would like to tell folks where they can find you or anything you're working on, now would be a good time. Thanks for having me on again, guys. Always appreciate the uh, invite. And uh, yeah, you can, as always, get uh, your Wolves fix at wolvesblog.com where there's various preview and report articles and other interesting things, lots of comments. If your team's playing Wolves or you're a Wolves fan, do log on. Uh, you can message me on Twitter at Wolvesblog or you can get us on facebook.com forward slash Wolvesblog. Yeah, and all of our lead stuff is up over at All Stats, aren't we, on Twitter. Um, you may not be a Leeds fan, but you may be an American who is interested in how Jesse Marsh is getting on. So do head over. We've got quite a few things over on our feed over there. We've got a video just summarising the way that Jesse Marsh's teams play. So a bit of video analysis there, which you might enjoy as well. That's over on our Patreon. So um, you can check our Patreon out at www.patreon.com forward slash All Stats, aren't we? And then if you are interested in podcast about tactics then check out at pod about tactics on twitter and all of the stuff is over there yeah and i'm your host kevin devries you can find me on twitter at keveroff you can find this show at epl roundtable on twitter you can also email us at epl roundtable at gmail.com if you have any questions you'd like us to discuss on the show uh but yeah go to both of these guys sites they're great <laughs> you should definitely be checking them out uh as for us that'll do it for today but folks at home we hope you keep listening When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM. 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.